Welcome to Personal Best, the show where we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things health, wellness, and fitness. I'm your host, Brian Dalek. This week, a cyclist with a mission to become the first female African-American professional cyclist. On the show today, Gloria Liu interviews Aisha McGowan. Gloria is a senior editor at Bicycling Magazine. She's also a pretty hardcore mountain bike racer who is no stranger to the podium, a lot like her guest, Aisha McGowan. Aisha is also a cyclist, but unlike Gloria, she specializes in racing on the road, which means she primarily races criterium events and road races. And if you don't know, criteriums are typically called crits, and they involve racing laps around a closed course, like in a park or around several blocks in an urban area. And the length of those laps ranges, but usually they aren't any longer than a mile. And the races themselves are fairly short, about an hour or less. Road races, on the other hand, last a lot longer. They typically make a giant loop, or they may consist of two or three long-distance laps. Sometimes they go point-to-point, and road races can be 40, 50, 75, or well over 100 miles long, depending on the event. Now, in cycling, fitness and strength is only part of the equation. You also need to be really good at positioning and saving your energy by drafting off other riders, which means it takes a lot of strategy and savvy to do well in a bike race, and that takes a long time to master which is why it usually takes most riders years to move up from the very beginning categories of racing to the higher, more elite categories. But not Aisha McGowan. Aisha started racing in 2014. She won her third race, a beginner-level state championship, and it was shortly after that that she announced her intention to become the first female African-American professional cyclist. She had been racing just eight months. Aisha's been working hard toward that goal ever since. She's now competing at a higher level. She raced in Europe this year. She's even picked up a few sponsors along the way, all while holding down a day job. She knows she's still got a long way to go, but as you'll hear, she has no intention of slowing down. Bicycling's Gloria Lou started their conversation by asking Aisha how it all began. So I understand that you started riding bikes as a way of commuting as an adult, right? Yeah. Um, I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston, and one of the first friends that I made um, at school rode his bike to school every day. And I, I don't remember if I'd asked him about it or how the conversation came about, but he recommend, he like highly recommended it. And so I mm-hmm. asked my mom for her bike and got it fixed up and started riding it and just like fell in love. Nice. So you're commuting to and from school. How'd you make the jump from riding your bike for transportation to racing? It took a while. Um, it started with commuting and then led into advocacy and then led into like, I was a messenger for a very short time and did like alley cats and like fixie kid stuff. And then um, through We Bike NYC, which is an advocacy club slash organization in New York City, um, 
I did a track clinic at Casino Velodrome in Queens mm-hmm. and had a really good time. And even then it took me a bit to like become a dedicated, I'm going to do this all the time thing. I did the clinic and I had a really good time, but I was still like terrified. It still kind of blows my mind how easy it is to get into racing if you just, if you know about it. But mm-hmm. after the clinic, they encouraged us to come back on Wednesday nights when they have races. And they were like, You're, you can just race now. And I'm like, no, no, you can't. That's just not, that's not how that works. <laughs> so, so this clinic that you took was um, on a velodrome, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then just uh, because a lot of our listeners are going to be people who actually um, may not ride bikes. So a velodrome is a closed track. It has a banked track, basically, and you're riding fixed gear bikes around in circles. Um, So you said that, you know, this riding on the track terrified you. I thought it was really fun. Uh It was the idea of just jumping into competition with other people that actually knew what they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that can be super intimidating. What got you over that hump? Um, friends. I think bike friends are the solution to most bike fears. (laughs) You just need somebody who makes it seem normal or makes it not seem that hard. Um, or is willing to like try it with you. At least that's how I operate. I, I do much better when I'm afraid of something if I have somebody that's like with me. So tell us about, you know, when you finally did take the plunge and tell us about that first race. Well, the first race I did was not a sanctioned race. I did the Red Hook Crit, which was like the coolest thing in the world to me. Um, I'm just going to jump in and and clarify for listeners here. The Red Hook Crit is a uh, now pretty famous race that started out as an underground race where people were racing these fixed gear bikes with no brakes um, on the road. So it's uh, to some even experienced cyclists considered a pretty uh, exciting and even potentially risky or dangerous form of racing, right, Aisha? Uh, yeah, a little, cr- yeah, yeah. I don't know that I would necessarily advise it or advise against it. I'm not, I think if you're going to do the Red Hook Crit, just prepare yourself a little more than I did. Um, it's not, racing is not just about fitness, and that's something that a lot of people misinterpret. It's just like, oh, if you're really strong, then you'll just be really fast, and then that's enough, and it's really not enough. And I did not have any clue what I was doing. I had no business trying to do what I was trying to do. Um, and it ended pretty poorly. Um, so my first race was the Red Hook Crip Brooklyn. It was the first time they'd let, or that they'd had a dedicated women's field. And I was really excited about that because I was a part of a women's empowerment organization and I was super into women's empowerment and this was empowering to women and it was a part of this new thing that I was into which was competitive bike racing um and so I decided that I wanted to do it because I could um and I did whatever training meant to me at the time and um I showed up and then I got to the starting line and they blew the whistle and then I just kind of it felt like they were going somewhere and I wasn't (laughs) And it wasn't that I wasn't physically capable of keeping up. I was just mentally not prepared for whatever it was. It was like super cold and downpouring and I was just miserable and just terrified. And I think I just shut down. And so I was just riding in slow circles. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man. So did you did you ever th- th- so the group takes off and the roads are wet and it's scary. Did you ever catch the group? God no. <laughs> no. <laughs> they caught me actually and that's where the catastrophe happened. Um it was me and another rider and the lead group was coming around and in trying to avoid us somebody ran into the barrier and like seriously hurt themselves. And they stopped the race. And I left that race like soaked, freezing, and in tears. I was miserable and terrified, and I had no idea what just happened. So it was a pretty horrible first race. That sounds like a pretty traumatizing first racing experience. How, what got you to come back? Why did you come back? Well, I attributed it to my lack of experience. I thought it wouldn't make sense for me to quit because I did have some weird sadistic form of fun. Um... (laughs) But I realized that there was a lot I didn't know and a lot that I needed to know. And so I signed up for every clinic I could find. And my promise to myself was, like, I can't help the woman who got hurt. Like, I can't reverse that. But I can educate myself and prepare myself better so I'm not uh, a hazard (laughs) to the people around me. (laughs) And I also figured that... If that was my first race, it cannot possibly get worse than that. Like, I could not imagine it getting worse than that. And so far, I think I'm still pretty right. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's a that's a fantastic reaction because I think it could have been very easy to just feel guilty about what happened and, you know, to just have never come back. But instead, you decided to educate and empower yourself and give yourself the knowledge to keep doing it. So that's that's a fantastic reaction. Um, so that was your very first race. And um, I understand that um, you're th- it didn't take long for things to start looking up. And not long after that, I think, was when you decided to go pro. So can you tell us about, you know, the event or the moment where you decided to, to go for it? I was doing really well toward the end of my first season. And I realized that I had enough points that I could get my upgrade. Like I was so close to my upgrade, I raced enough races to get the points and then I got my upgrade. And I felt really good about it and I felt like, man, this is really cool. I wonder who else, if anybody who's looked like me has done this and like how far they've gone because I, I had personally only encountered two other black women in racing. Mind you, it was only my first season, but I didn't only encounter two women. (laughs) I just only encountered Mm -hmm. two black women. So I thought that was just really peculiar, especially in New York City, which is pretty diverse. You run into Mm -hmm. all types of people, but in this like niche activity, I only had interaction competitively with two women that looked like me and I thought that was odd so Mm -hmm. I was kind of searching around and like asking around and trying to figure out if there had been any you know African-American women who'd you know gone pro or done anything in cycling that was spectacular Um, and I didn't find anybody who'd gone pro who'd raced road and I thought that was really odd because at the time it was I think 20... 14 and Mm -hmm. that didn't make sense to me like everyone rides bikes how had this not been done before and so I just decided that hey I'm good at this and I've got the drive and motivation to do it so I'm gonna go for it myself 
and I had no idea what I was signing up for or no idea what that meant. But for some reason, I had this like <laughs> incredible amount of confidence that I could do it. And I thought that was neat. So I went for it. At the time, you had only been racing for, what, eight months? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, a lot of, especially pro men, and but even, you know, the pro women who um, are some of the bigger names in the American pro peloton have been racing since they were juniors or in college. So um, to make that decision eight months in was certainly very audacious. Um, did you at the time ever think that it felt crazy or very bold? Um, I'm a pretty compulsive person. <laughs> so the answer for that would be not for me. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know how common it is, but I grew up truly believing that I could do or be anything. Like if somebody said right now, could you be the president of the United States? I'd be like, I'm sure I could figure it out. I don't want to, <laughs> but I have a ridiculous base of confidence that I can do anything I want to do. If I, if I want to do it, there is a way to make it happen, um, which... I have like pretty serious anxiety so that it doesn't make any sense. But if I make a big decision, I'll just dive in and go for it. And that's just who I am. So for me, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Where do you think you get that from? Um, that level of confidence? My mom, my grandma, my family. They're just such a like ridiculous group of humans and will celebrate pretty much anything and everything. Like everyone piles in and goes to every single graduation. We all celebrate birthdays. Every other year, the whole family goes to Florida together, like the entire extended family. I think I just had this supportive, huge group of crazy humans. And I felt like, okay, I can do anything I want to do because that's what they keep telling me. So then it's true. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about that. So when you made this decision to be the first African-American female pro, did you at first initially declare this goal publicly? Because it's certainly very public now. And if you did, what kind of reactions did you get? So I think it was like New Year's Eve or New Year's Day or something like that. But I was in a mood and I felt really like emblazoned to live more deliberately. Like that was what the whole post was about. How I was going to be more deliberate mm -hmm. and do the things that I want to do. And so... I think Facebook was like the first line of attack and I had like built this blog page to, to document the journey, which was a quick brown fox and just kind of put it all out there at once. And within my bike circle, it kind of grew from there, which was not what I was anticipating. I just made the blog for myself and my family and my friends. It kind of took fire pretty quickly. And when this sort of started to gain traction and you were, you could sense that it was resonating with people. How did that feel to you? Did it, it, did it sort of fuel your fire? Did you feel added pressure? Pressure is not the right word. It felt really cool to almost be able to commiserate with people um, about this lack of diversity in cycling. And also there were some like adverse reactions and that kind of operated as fuel. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, now I definitely have to do this. Um, hmm. But I don't think I ever felt 
pressure from the outside. I always feel like I'm my own toughest critic, and if there is any pressure, it com- it definitely comes from within. So when you say there were some adverse reactions, um, can you give us some examples? Um, the most common adverse reaction is that people don't understand why it matters or like why it's necessary mm-hmm. or like why they should care. Um, which I guess is fair. Like if you don't understand the goal, then why would you care about it? Um, and so I ended up writing a blog post pretty immediately about why it mattered and the the fact that my goal wasn't for people that it didn't matter to. Like I was doing this mm. for people like me who thought that this was important. But so, the hardest part is just convincing people that it is even a thing. <laughs> Can you tell us why it is so important to you to be the first African-American female pro? I don't know that it's necessarily important for me to be the first. I think it's just important that there is one at all um, and that others can follow. I'm really big on representation and I do believe a lot in role models. And when I was little, I looked up to a lot of different role models um, and i think that it's not cool that there's not that person yet in cycling because it's something that I care about so deeply and something that I think is really, really fun. And I think a lot of little girls who were like me would also think is really fun. And like you said before, most people who go pro in this sport have been doing it pretty much their whole lives. And I feel like that access to that opportunity is not present in the lives of most African-American little girls um, because they just don't know about it. And I feel like if, as a person of color and as an African-American woman, at least my family and my parents were really big on making sure I knew, you know, the people that look like me that were doing stuff in the world. Um, Because it's always inspiring. And that's why I feel like I can do anything, because I saw all of these other people who were doing really cool things um, that looked like me. But I really do strongly believe that if there is more representation in the sport, then more people will be interested and more people will start doing it earlier or get their kids to do it earlier. And eventually it won't be a thing anymore, which will yeah. take a really long time. But got to start mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah, I uh, I can totally relate with that as somebody who is also a person of color and picked up cycling relatively late in life. I always envy those people who were exposed to it when they were kids and, you know, wonder where I'd be. So I definitely uh, think it's important, too, that, you know, we try to expose new communities and bring new people into the sport. So it's very cool. Um, All right, so we'll come back to a little bit of this stuff in a bit. Um, I wanted to back up a bit. So, you know, you declared this big goal, um, but you were still a relatively beginner racer. And um, just for our listeners, I just wanted to quickly explain how racing in the U.S. works. Um, So road racing in the United States is organized by categories. And uh, you start as a beginner as a category four racer um, for women. And they have a five as you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they added that just recently. Um, And as you win or place high, like, top five or six in your races, you earn points. And when you accumulate enough points, then you can upgrade categories. Um, and cat three and four racers, I would say, are kind of typically your more weekend warrior folks. Um, and then when you get up to a cat two or a cat one, that's what we would typically call like an elite racer. Um, and these athletes have 
often have coaches, they're often on teams, and even if they're not getting paid to ride their bikes, they sell day jobs so you can win, you know, prize money, and they sometimes can get sponsorships through the form of bikes and apparel. So here you are, you're a Cat 4 racer, right? And you've just decided you want to go pro. Um, and that's a, that's a long path, right, from Cat 4 to pro. Um, did you, after you put that goal out there, uh, tell us about what the road was like, you know, in the media in the months following that. Did you see success in your racing right away? Um, were there setbacks? Um, well, I am pretty goal-oriented. So one of the first things that I did when I decided I was going to do this was set a list of goals for myself for the following year. Um, so going into the next season, I had enough points and I filed for my upgrade just before the season started. So I started in 2015 as a Cat 3. And I remember some of my goals, I wanted to win another state championship, race in a state I'd never been to before. But I did those two things. And that was really cool to like set these goals and achieve them, which probably gave me another boost of confidence. But I, I think the hardest part was not knowing how to get there. So I was just kind of figuring it out as I went along. Yeah. So actually, one thing we sort of hadn't mentioned is that, yeah, you said that you won a state championship. And I understand that was just your third bike race, right? In your first season, you won won a state championship as a Cat 4. I did a park race, um, which in New York City in the racing scene, most of the road races are in the park. So Mm -hmm. um, because it's a major city, you have to wake up super, super early. And the races usually start at like five in the morning. Um, because mm-hmm. they need to get out of the way before regular pedestrian park users are going to use the park. Um, so I did a park race, and then the day after was the state championships. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. I mean, what happened? Did you just, were you in the lead from the go? Was it a sprint? Like, no, tell us about how it I out. was pretty terrified, honestly. My mentor at the time talked me into it because he was announcing, and he he was like, he'd been in the racing scene for years and years and years, and he was so matter-of-factly about it. And he's just like, you got to do this race. Um, you got to do this race, and if you win, they give you a jersey, and it's really cool. Um, and then you get to wear it at all the races the next season. But um, the day before, I'd done the, the park race, and it was the first time that I'd raced an open category race, which meant that I wasn't just racing against beginners. I was racing beginners and elite women at the same time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I didn't do too bad. <laughs> and so I went into the the championship race and someone had given me the advice that if you can be third wheel, like no further back than third wheel out of the last corner, then you've got a shot at winning. And I'm like, well, and that means third in line. Yeah. Yeah. Like third in line, basically like out of yeah. two bikes mm-hmm. in front of you. And I said, mm-hmm. well, I mean, <laughs> I have nothing else to lose, so I might as well just try. Like, I'm just doing this because it's fun. (laughs) And I found myself third wheel coming out of the last corner. And it was a combined field race with Masters and Cat 4 women. So Mm -hmm. I was actually the third person to cross the line. But the two women in front of me were Masters, um, which means they're over 35 years old. So they were both in the master's category, and I was the first person across the line from the cat- category four. And I didn't know it. I was just really excited that I got in third place. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to get to, like, stand on a podium, and that's yeah. like, yeah, like, this is great. And then 
um, I went to say hi to my mentor and he said, I think you just won <laughs> and explained it to me because I didn't quite understand how I could have won because I definitely saw two people in front of me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was really cool. And I did a dance. I, I literally did a happy dance. Um, I was so excited. Um, Great. That's awesome. That gave me chills because winning winning is such a special feeling. It um, is. So how did that change, you know, the way that you saw yourself as an athlete or a cyclist? There was time between the Red Hook crit and then that championship race, even though it was three races, like it was over the course of a couple of months. And mm-hmm. I went to these clinics and I like decided to like learn more and train harder. Uh, and... It wasn't just a matter of like, oh, I showed up and then suddenly I did well. Um, Like I worked for it. And it felt really, really nice to have such a big payoff. So I'm also a musician and I teach music to small children. And one of the biggest motivators for kids is instant gratification. So if you can teach them how to play a song that they recognize, they will keep coming back because they feel like they've Mm -hmm. done something. And I think for me, Hmm. winning a state championship was way more than I would have ever asked for at that stage. Um, It -hmm. made me want to keep coming back. Winning feels really great. Mm. It just does. That's awesome. So, you know, you saw that pretty early success and um, you decided to go pro and now you had to work your way up um, from a cat four to where you are now, which I understand is a cat two. Um, can you tell me about any moments or periods of time where uh, maybe you weren't seeing as much success and you may have felt some doubt about your goals? There are times where I've like, you know, plateaued, but I've never felt deterred from my goal or felt like I wasn't going to get there. I think because I kind of went through the ranks so rapidly, it was inevitable that I would eventually like hit a wall. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and I also have the, I, I call myself the captain of team doing too much. So during mm-hmm. this journey, I've also got married, moved twice, switched jobs a couple times because of the moves and like had to like start over a bunch of times. So I've like completely broken my momentum a couple of times and that messes with you a little bit, but I've tried to be patient about it. And it's also kind of hard Um, finding the right path to take because there's not really one way to get there. Um, So Mm. I think the answer to your question is no, nothing has ever made me feel like I wasn't going to accomplish what I've set out to do. But there have been instances where I'm like, all right, I might need to take a step back so I can move even further forward. Yeah. So one thing you you touched on is that um, you said that you felt like you've plateaued before. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to after they've been, you know, engaging in a sport or anything for a while. Can you tell me about a time when you felt you plateaued and what you did to break through that? Um, the beginning of this last season when it was actually pretty tough. Um, I was sick through all of my winter training, so I didn't really get any good winter training in. And then I was self-coaching, and so I hired a coach because I knew that there's just no way I was going to get through my season alone, being so far behind. And then we were working together, and I was doing really well, and then I crashed. <laughs> I felt like I had to start all oh. over again <laughs> because mm-hmm. I hit my head. I didn't get, like, super, super hurt, but, like, 
my coach is very responsible. So when I hit my head, she made me kind of stop for a little bit and like make sure I was okay. And so by the time I was getting into the swing of training, my season had started. Um, so I felt like this whole past season, I was just kind of like hanging on. <laughs> like that was the mm-hmm. whole year, just me hanging on, not ever doing particularly well. But I got to practice my grit a lot. I got to practice my like <laughs> determination level and like really see how much I care about this and how much this needs to me. I kept showing up <laughs> um, and eventually it got better and the season ended pretty well. But yeah, those like couple of months from like the start of my season up until the end of my season were hard. They were really hard, um, but I never felt deterred. It's interesting to hear you say that because from the outside, it seems like you had a really amazing year. You went on, I think, a speaking tour in the UK. Um, You were part of an Oakley ad campaign. Uh, And I think that this was the first season you went and raced in Europe, correct? Mm -hmm. No, I had a really great year, but results-wise, not necessarily the best. I know that Mm. I could have done better in the races that I did. um, And that if I didn't put myself in the right mindset would have been really, really disappointing. Sounds like you sort of tried to look on the bright side and think about the experience. Is that one of the ways that you stay motivated even when things aren't necessarily going the way you want them to? For sure. I think positivity is like the only way that I'm going to get to where I'm going Um, because bad things are going to happen. It's inevitable. It's just a part of it. In the scheme of things, one race will not define me. Mm-hmm. And if I spend all of my time either beating myself up or being really upset about whatever happened in a race that I've already done, then I'm ruining myself for a future race. So let's move on a little bit um, and talk more about your uh, mission and uh, diversity in cycling. So cycling is a, you know, it's not a particularly diverse sport. It's mostly male and it's mostly white. Um, so... One thing I've I've heard you say in interviews is that you feel like nobody is really trying to solve the problem of diversity in cycling. Um, do you ever feel alone in your mission? Um, no, I never feel alone. Uh, I feel like there are a, there like there is a group of people that understand that it is a thing. Um, but as far as like the priorities in the, in the cycling world, it's not very high up um, for most folks. And mm-hmm. I honest, I like, I get it. Like, why would it be high up if it's not, you know, a, a personal issue for you? You're going to mm-hmm. fight for the things you care about. And if it's not something that affects you, it's not going to be something that you think about that often. And it's one of those things that people are willing to support, but not necessarily initiate. Mm-hmm. So when you say that um, you don't feel alone, though. Have you found allies in the cycling community, or do you find most of your allies beyond it? Um, no, there are definitely folks in within the cycling community that are all for seeing more diversity and um, expanding what a cyclist looks like, you know, or what that like idea is. How, how do you feel like your identity as a person of color or as an African-American woman has affected your cycling experience, if at all? Have you ever experienced any sense of racism or exclusion? I think most of my experiences that would 
I guess, qualify as racism or exclusion, it's been mostly like microaggressions um, where I don't feel like people are bold enough to be blatantly racist, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I have experienced microaggressions and more subtle forms of that. And a little bit of it also when I was in Europe um, and uh, more so on the internet. Hmm. Then it then it gets more blatant and more obvious, but like in person, I don't think anyone's brave or bold enough to to do it. But it's it's definitely there. Hmm. Um, would you be willing to share like an example of what you mean by microaggressions? It's one of those things where you like notice it when it happens, and then you try to try to move on from it. I think. Sometimes, like one of my biggest annoyances is people like trying to relate to me, um, like trying to talk to me in a way that they wouldn't talk to anyone else um, because mm-hmm. they feel that they need to communicate to me differently. <laughs> hmm. um, and it's, it's like, it's weird. Like that's why I, I sound so awkward trying to explain it because it's super uncomfortable for mm-hmm. all parties involved. And, <laughs> and it's one of those things where you're just like, I need this to not be happening (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah or they'll like try and talk about like black things like i i get a lot of like Mm. major taylor conversations um (laughs) um Mm, mm -hmm. major taylor was like a very prominent track racer african-american track racer Mm -hmm. in like the late 1800s and he's pretty much like the symbol of all things (laughs) black in cycling that people go to as like their first reference um mm-hmm. but it's like i understand like i make room for more things like that because of how public i am about my mission and who i am and what i'm trying to do but mm-hmm. um there's also folks who are not very nice in their microaggressions where it's not even like them trying to like relate to me but they're just being jerks and being mean um and underhanded and i kind of just brush all that stuff off I don't have time or energy for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it's not an exclusive to cycling thing. Like that's just like everywhere and every day of life. Yeah. That's, it's a, it was a hard question because sort of a definition of a microaggression is that it's really hard to put your finger on it, but it's, I guess, a general sense that you're being treated differently, whether it's, you know, in a, no matter how, what the intentions are. Um, so, I mean, you said that you sort of just brush it off. Like, was it a process to get to the point where you could brush that off? Was there ever a time when it upset you more? I think the reason that this whole mission is so important to me is because I was once of the, one of those people who didn't understand why something like this would be necessary, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I grew up in a pretty diverse suburban town in in New Jersey. And so I feel like I was pretty sheltered from most of the concepts of microaggressions and of, you know, what racism can look like if it's not, you know, blatant, like KKK and like what you like what you read in like books in school, like what they define mm-hmm. as racism. Um, I didn't experience that or I didn't know I was experiencing that until I left my like mm-hmm. little bubble of a hometown and the world was like cruel and mean and harsh. And I'm like, oh, OK, I get it now. And. I think it's really easy to be sheltered from that type of lifestyle if you live in a place or in a way where you don't encounter any of it. 
And so understanding mm -hmm. it is virtually impossible. So um, I did get to a point where I can keep it moving. Um, I think most people who look like me just learn how to do it just out of survival. There's just this like double life that you're constantly living where it's like, oh, okay, they just shot another black person. Great. But at the same time, it's like, oh man, I'm going to go ride my bike today and have a really good time. It's like, you, like, <laughs> how do you balance all these awful things are always happening, but I still have to live my life. So it's like microaggressions are always there, but if you stop and like give them the time and energy every single time, you literally go crazy. Yeah, yeah, totally. I totally understand. Um, well, the other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about a little bit um, is you are also a part-time preschool music teacher, right? Are you still doing that now? Well, I just moved to Decatur, Georgia, so I am currently job hunting. Um, but okay, yes, the answer is normally when I am employed, it uh -huh. is as a preschool music teacher. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, if you could pick like one go-to strategy or trick um, for balancing all those things, like I don't know if you, I don't know if you make lists or if you like always try to get your workout done in the morning, like just like you know one trick that maybe our listeners could learn from, what would it be? Plan everything, like write it all down. I am a big fan of planners. Actually on the desk in front of me right now, there are two planners. <laughs> um, <laughs> I write everything down. I plan my free time. I plan my, my training time. I plan my working time. <laughs> I plan my family time, friends time. And, um, and sometimes that also means saying no to things. And that's important too, like knowing when to say no to things. Um, as the president, secretary, and most of the members of Team Doing Too Much, I think learning how to say no is probably one of the more important skills that you can gain when you have big goals like this. Um, but yeah, plan everything. So you mentioned this earlier, actually, that you you think it's funny that you uh, set this big goal as a racer because you yourself have dealt with some issues with anxiety. How do you deal with your ang balancing anxiety with a high pressure situation like racing or training even? Um, I lie to myself a lot and like tell myself I'm not afraid if I am. Um, actually, what's really cool is this morning I saw um, an article in a video that's been going around about a six-year-old girl who, like a six-year-old black girl who is now the world champion in BMX. <laughs> And like they interviewed her and someone asked her a similar question and her answer was like, well, even if I'm scared, I just try anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was like, yeah, that's, that's it. That's exactly it. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Um, so what's your number one piece of advice for somebody who wants to just go for a huge goal? I think the first step is to actually believe that you can. The second step would be to decide how much it means to you and why, because you're going to need motivation when things get hard. And the why is usually the best form of motivation. I'd say after that, make some sort of plan. And if you don't really know how to make a plan, set some smaller goals, um, like break down the big goal into like smaller little goals. Like for me, it was like, okay, I know at least the next step is to upgrade. So figure out 
how to do that next step, whatever it is. Um, and have a support system, like decide who you're going to listen to um, and who you're going to trust. Because at least in cycling, everyone's an expert. <laughs> and uh, that's true. <laughs> you have to um, really know who is an expert that has also got your best interests at heart and like really just know who you are because at least if your goal is deemed controversial as mine it sometimes is folks will sometimes try to tell you who you are and you have to make sure that you know who you are so they can't sway that yeah that is solid solid advice all right uh what about just for the rest of us, uh, maybe not everyone's going to set as huge of a goal, but just people who want to get better at something that's really hard. Um, any other advice? There are two paths you could take. One is to find somebody who's already good at it, like a coach or a mentor or advisor or a friend. Bike friends are so helpful because you can learn from each other and grow together and um it's just more, it's a more organic way of getting better at something because if you're having fun, then you're going to be more inclined to be distracted from whatever is holding you back, if that makes sense. Um, versus if you're just frustrated and hitting a wall and just being annoyed by yourself, that that's awful and nobody's going to really thrive in that environment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And... The other answer is just do it more. Learn as much about it as you can and just do it a lot. And theoretically, that should help you get better. What about the biggest lesson you've learned in the last, you know, three or four years that you've been chasing this dream? Um, the biggest lesson that I've learned is that success looks differently to everyone. And it's important for you to know what your idea of success is because comparison will like kill you every time. Yeah. I, and actually, you know, how close do you feel like you are to achieving what you define as your goal? Because from what I understand, you know, as a cat too, you've, you've been racing UCI races, which are, you know, is these where the best international riders will go race. UCI is the world's governing body for cycling. So you already are racing with the pros. When will you feel like you've achieved your goal? So my idea of success is that I will get a pro contract um, on a world tour team, which depending on the world tour team could happen now if they decide that they wanted to take a chance <laughs> or, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere down the road. But I feel like I'm pretty close but it's one of those things where it could take a short amount of time or a long amount of time um regardless i'm just gonna keep going that was bicycling's senior editor gloria Liu speaking with cyclist aisha mcgowan about her goal to become the first female african-american professional cyclist you can follow Aisha's progress on her website at aquickbrownfox.com. We'll also have that link for you on the show notes at bicycling.com slash audio. 
And that is it for this week's Personal Best. I'm your host, Brian Dalek, and I was helped this week as the show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson and Christine Fennessy. Be sure to join us next week for a conversation with a fitness trainer who transformed his life after losing 100 pounds. Thanks for listening.